Anchored in Reaching is for curious people who want to explore the story that God is writing in history and who are looking for their own place in that story to find meaning and vibrancy in their life and vocation. I'm Kevin Minoya. Join me each week as Susanna Fleming and I probe the edges of faith and living, always in relation to God who knows you best. For some, it'll be an opportunity to anchor yourself more securely in your faith. For others, it'll be motivation to reach out to engage more broadly. In either case, these conversations should encourage, enlighten, and challenge you. Hi, friends. Well, I'm really glad that you joined me again today on Anchored in Reaching. This is a uh, wonderful time that I get to spend talking with you. I sure hope that you enjoy listening to these podcasts as much as I enjoy producing them. Of course, I don't do it alone, as you know. Uh, I've got a great guy in Chris Frazier who produces these, and of course, you've heard Susanna Uh, who participates, and increasingly we're going to get other voices involved as well. But um, I just really enjoy this, and I appreciate the fact that uh, you take some time to listen. Today I'm flying solo. Uh, Susanna's not with me, and uh, she must be out. I think she's out doing work stuff. So uh, I'm going to wrap up this series that we've been on called The Word is More Than Words. And we've been talking a little bit about Scripture. So I'm, I'm flying on my own here, and I hope that's okay. Um, and I would love to have your feedback if you'd like. I also would love to have you provide us your thoughts on some of these subjects. And of course, if there's something that you think we ought to be addressing, please write it. You can, you can contact us actually at podcast at anchoredandreaching.com. It's just podcast at anchoredandreaching.com. Or if you want to, you're free to email me directly through my website, kevinmanoya.com. And there's a place there where you can send me a message. It comes straight to me. And I'd be glad to uh, engage with you a little bit. Um, I'm very happy over since um, we've done the last one. I'm really excited that I've released a new book called Expressing Life, and it's a primer on integrating faith and learning. So you may want to take a look at that uh, on Amazon. Uh, I'm very excited about that book already in East Africa. A number of universities have picked it up, and it's going to be released in Brazil soon, in Portuguese. So um, this is a very exciting time of life. But I got to admit that I really enjoy spending time uh, preparing with you on these Anchored and Reaching podcasts. As I said before, we are in this series called The Word is More Than Words, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the idea that the Word of God really is bigger than the written words that we often attribute that title to when we refer to the Bible. And we've talked a lot about uh, trying to expand our horizons a little bit. Certainly, the Bible is the Word of God. It is uh, it, it is authoritative. We hold it in very high regard, and it is the authoritative source of matters concerning truth and life. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those terms to help maybe clarify them. So I'd like to wrap up briefly this series on the Word is More Than Words. Remember that when we were talking about the Word in Scripture, often the the original word is logos. Now, logos is more than expressed verbal terminology or words, and it's more than expressed written words on paper or scrolls back then. 
So the idea of logos really goes way beyond spoken or even written word. It has to do with the idea of the substance that holds the universe together. It's not a word that's limited to Christian uh, circles or to Jewish circles. It's a, it's a word that really refers much more broadly than that to the cosmic reality, the ether that holds all of, of, the, of the cosmos, all of creation together. So that when we go and we read Paul, who says that he, referring to Jesus, is the Logos. He was in the beginning, Was he was with God, and nothing was created without him. He is the substance that holds all things together. You remember that, that writing that Paul gives us, that in Christ all things are held together, all of creation. And of course, he was in the beginning, so nothing was created uh, without him. So now all of a sudden we realize that the idea of logos, the substance, is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. Most obviously in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there the reference is to the logos, uh, that which pre-existed all of creation. So we're beginning to realize that this idea of the word is much more than written words that that basically have a timestamp on them. I mean, they were put together, the Bible was put together in the 5th century AD through the councils of the church. So, so when, when John refers to the word became flesh, he's, he's not talking about the Bible, he's talking about a person, he's talking about the substance of creation taking on the form of flesh. That's the, the nature of the incarnation. In Jesus Christ, we have the substance, the creative substance of God taking human form. So right there, we realize that it the idea of calling it the word is more than just the written word or even the spoken word. So Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the word. Sometimes we refer to that as the living word. Jesus is the living word, and then we have the written word. And that's okay, as long as we understand that we cannot limit the concept of the Word of God to simply the writing, the books, the 66 books, or in some cases, some Christian traditions use 84 books, or in some traditions, they use 72 books. Uh, we happen to use 66 books of the Old and New Testament and believe those are uh, the written Word of God. But then there's the living Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. There is the special revelation that we consider to be Jesus and the written Word. And then there's the general revelation that is often, that's a term that's often used in reference to creation and our conscience and our morals, our inner compass. So you see, this, this whole thing is much bigger than the written word. Now, we get to other places in Scripture, and the same thing is true. You know, uh, Hebrews 4.12 um, is another place where we see the reference to the logos uh, is is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just the Bible being referred to here. We're talking about the expression of God. You see, the, the, the Word of God is the expression of God, both in creative, general, and in special, incarnational, and written form. 
We go to other places, for example, where Paul writes in Ephesians 6, uh, there it's a different word. There it is a it is an expressed word, the rhema, the spoken, articulated statement. That's a different, that's a different word. And and the danger, folks, is that we can conflate all of the ideas of God's expression into the word word. And when we do that, we then furthermore often reduce it or minimize it down to the written word or what we call the Bible. And so we, we often try to contain all of God's expressions in one book of 60, in one Bible of 66 books. And that simply is not appropriate, and it's certainly not possible. God is way too big to be contained in 66 books of the Bible. It is one way that God has expressed himself, albeit the primary source of truth and life for us. Nevertheless, it is one way. He has, cre- he has communicated, he has expressed himself through other ways, like Jesus Christ, like creation, the substance of the universe, you see. But he also has spoken and he has inspired writers to write. So let's not conflate all of God's expression into simply the written documents that we canonize, or it's another word for putting together in a sacred text, that we canonize into what we call the 66 books of the Bible. That's why I say that the word is more than words. Uh, And notice that I say it's more than, right? The Bible is absolutely central, uh, absolutely central. John Wesley said, I am a man of one book. Now, when he said that, he didn't mean that that was the only source of truth. What he meant by that was that is the primary source of understanding God and how God works relative to God's other sources of understanding that we've already talked about when we talked about the various sources of truth in what we've come to know as a quadrilateral. So the Logos transcends that that limited understanding of just the written word, and yet the written word remains absolutely essential. Now, there are a lot of debates over this this word, this Bible that we call it, understanding it in its broad sense. Now we go to just the written document itself, and there are a lot of people who have argued a lot over this, and there are a lot of people who have lost a lot of sweat and tears, and, and people have lost their jobs. I witnessed one scholar losing his job because other scholars didn't believe that he that 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 he was teaching the word or the bible as being important enough and they took him to task for it um, and he lost his job so so this is not just playing around here it's not just semantical people are very invested in this but let me see if i can help you uh, understand some of the terminology and realize that there are some terms that we hold dear. So, for example, I I cling, and and in and in our my particular tradition in the Wesleyan Holiness tradition, we cling to three really important words when it comes to describing the Bible. Remember the word logos, but then the written word is part of that. The three words that I that I turn your attention to and try to un, unpack a little bit with you 
First of all, it's, uh, we, we would consider the Bible now, I'm using that word very explicitly and particularly, the Bible in what we understand, those 66 books, to be infallible. That's, that's one word. If you're taking notes, take a note of that. It's infallible. What does that mean? Well, it just means it's, it will not fail to accomplish its purpose. In other words, God's, God's word or his spoken word in this case will not return to him void. Uh, God's written word will not fail to accomplish the purpose for which it was intended and for which God gave it. It's going to fulfill its purpose. You don't have to worry about that one iota. What is the purpose of God? Well, in Christ, he was reconciling all things to himself. He's creating a new heaven and a new earth. So in the process of establishing his kingdom, the Bible will not fail to fulfill the purpose of bringing understanding about the kingdom of God, insights about who God is, insights about how God has worked in history and how God will work in the future in your life and in the corporate nature of the church broadly. It will not fail to, uh, to fulfill its purpose. It's infallible. That's a strong word, and we cling to that. I cling to that. A second word that's really important is that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Now, authoritative is not the same as authoritarian, nor is it the same as autocratic. A lot of people mix those words up. Autocratic is simply a means by which you make decisions. Some people make decisions democratically, where everybody votes and they the majority rules. That's a democratic way. Other people, early uh, Jewish history, it was a theocratic way of making decisions. It was, let's see what God says. God was making the decisions. And, and there are different forms of decision-making. Autocratic simply means that I make the decision myself. Now, you make decisions yourself all the time, unilaterally, without, without checking with anybody else. Most parents make autocratic decisions. And when they say to their child, I don't want you to touch the hot stove, stop it, and I made a decision that you will not do this, you will not eat ice cream, oh, heaven forbid, uh, you will not eat ice cream three times a day, uh, and parents make those autocratic decisions all the time. It's simply a way of saying, who is the agent that makes a decision on a particular issue? Auto means self. So I will make the decision uh, in this regard, and therefore it's an autocratic decision. But that doesn't have pejorative or negative overtones necessarily. A lot of people ascribe to autocratic decision-making a very negative opinion, when in reality it doesn't have to be, because we all make autocratic decisions often, and many leaders make autocratic decisions. Often they're very gentle and very benevolent and very godly people who make autocratic decisions. Now, that's a way of making a decision. Um, uh, a, 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 an authoritarian person, however, is one who has who takes the authority and imposes it on other people, whether or not they know what they're talking about. In other words, you get somebody who is um, who's an expert in baseball. And now that person moves into a basketball team and they start acting as if they know more than anybody else on the basketball team just because they're an expert in baseball. 
See, that's transposing the authority they have because of their experience in one area and imposing it on other people where they don't necessarily have the authority or they have the expertise. And they impose not only that false sense of authority or expertise, but they impose their own will and subjugate others. That is authoritarian. You see, different from autocratic, which is how you make a decision, uh, authoritarian is imposition. Authoritative just simply describes someone who really knows what they're talking about. I mean, if we walk into a room and we're trying to learn how to play football and there's a professional football player in the room, who do you think we're going to turn to as the authority on the subject of football? Well, of course, we're going to turn to that person. You know, uh, pastors get that a lot. You know, you walk into a room and and we're going to have lunch and everybody says, who's going to say the, who's going to say grace? Who's going to pray over the food? Well, they automatically look to the pastor. After all, he's the authority on praying, right? As if somehow a pastor is the only one who can pray. Um, so the idea of authoritative or authoritative, yes, is simply means that here we have an expert on a particular subject. When I want to know what's going on with my car and I have questions about my car, I call my son, who's a mechanic. He's a technician and he understands cars, right? When I want to know something that's going on with my body, I call my daughter or I call my son-in-law because they're medical doctors. They are they're authoritative when it comes to the, the field of study. So authoritative simply means you... you uh, you have an expertise. You you command knowledge about certain things. Autocratic is how you make a decision. Authoritarian is imposition of the will. So we would say that the Bible is authoritative. In other words, it tells us most clearly what God has in mind for faith and life. It doesn't, it's not authoritative as a science uh, book. It's not authoritative on a lot of things. But when it comes to faith and life, the Bible is authoritative and we hold it up as such. There's a third word I want to give you, and that is the word inspired. This one perhaps is, you know, the most important one because it describes the source it you know it describes the where did it come from it came from god this is not something that came together out of a group of people it didn't come out of the pastor's office it didn't come out of the council it didn't come out of the bishop's office it didn't come out of somebody's scholarship it came from the very heart of god ezekiel 47:1 it flows from the temple it flows from the heart of god this is god communicating with people it's inspired by God. And that means the source comes from God. And when the source comes from God, that's what adds the value uh, to to what it says. So you see, inspired describes the source. It's in God. Authoritative describes the agency right? It describes um, that, that this is the expert. And infallible describes its mission and purpose. These are three really critical words. So the value or the validation of the Bible doesn't come because it's infallible or authoritative. It comes because it's inspired by God. It comes from God, and therefore, that adds value. 
It's authoritative because it speaks to matters of faith in life, and God is the author of faith in life, and he is the authority on the matter. Even though he spoke through humans, he inspired those humans. And it's infallible in that it will accomplish its purpose. It will not fail. Now, as we wrap up here, there's one other word that you probably noticed that I've not used that many churches or denominations don't uh, put into their articles of religion or their statement of faith, and that is the word inerrant. And there are a lot of churches, my own denomination and myself, I don't consider myself to be an inerrantist in the extreme sense of the word. And, and unfortunately, as most things, uh, as often happens when people get into arguments about stuff, they push each other to an extreme. Inerrancy is okay if we understand that, that the Bible has no errors in, in material substance of what it says. I, that's fine. Uh, some people would say, well, it's inerrant in everything that's written uh, in, its, in the original manuscript. Well, we, we really don't have the original manuscript, so that's kind of a moot point. Others will push really hard on inerrancy of the Scripture or of the Bible today, that it does not have errors in it, because if there's one error in one part of it, then you got to throw the whole thing out. Well, in my way of thinking, that's, that's really not true. That really isn't the case. That just because there may be textual errors, there may be inconsistencies, because there are ways that things are written that aren't completely accurate— and, and uh, it, it doesn't mean that the authoritativeness or the inspiredness or the infallibility of Scripture is somehow in question. You see, the word inerrancy is in a different category. It deals with the text itself. These other three words deal with the communication or the expression of God. But inerrancy turns its attention from the source and the agency and the mission of the Bible, it turns the attention back onto the text itself. Now, the value of the Bible is not because it is inerrant. The power of the Bible doesn't come to us because it is inerrant. It, it is powerful, it is transformative, because it's inspired by God, not because it doesn't happen to have any errors in it. That's like putting the authority of Scripture or the Bible into the text itself and into its literary perfection. And that's not, where the, that's not where the power of the Bible comes from. It comes from the fact that it comes out of the heart of God who inspired it and who provides an authoritative uh, communication on matters of truth and life, and it will not fail to accomplish its purpose, you see. So let's not get caught up in the, the idea, is it inerrant or is it not inerrant? If you want to believe that it's inerrant, um, make sure that that does not become the focus of why you think the Bible is important and why you preach it or why you teach it. When you say that it that it doesn't have material or substantive errors in it in terms of fulfilling its purpose, certainly, I would just say that's infallible. So I don't want to get caught up in all of the arguments because the problem is not the word, but when people start holding up inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we're going to hold soundly to the inerrancy, and then they start preaching the inerrancy of Scripture, and they start adopting an attitude that the Bible 
is inerrant, all of a sudden it changes how they think and how they communicate. And it becomes rigid, it becomes limited, it becomes exclusive. And, and that, I think, is not consistent with the intent of God who poured out his heart, inspiring people to write authoritatively about faith and life in a way that would not fail to fulfill the purpose that God has when God expressed himself through all of creation, through Jesus the living word, and through the written word that he used prophets and writers to write. So, um, that's why I don't happen to hold tightly to the concept of inerrancy. My tradition doesn't. My denomination doesn't. And, and yet, we want to be grace-filled in understanding that everybody holds high the Scripture as the expression of God. We have a high view of Scripture, and that's a technical term. I'm not talking about a high regard uh, for Scripture, like you would appreciate a, a 57 Chevy or something like that. I'm talking about a high view of Scripture. It is the primary source of truth among the other sources of truth, the primacy of Scripture. Remember, we talked about that last time. So I'm hopeful that this will help you as you think through this book that you hold in your hand, the power of it, the transformative nature of it, the genesis of it coming right from the heart of God through faithful witnesses who have carried that message into writing so that we could have it today, the process of canonization of prayer and the Holy Spirit at present, uh, present through hundreds of people coming together and deciding what should be included in the Bible. This is a process that could only happen under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit to be consistent with the intents of God. So we hold it, we hold it with reverence. We preach it with power. We teach it with conviction. And I pray that you, as you read your Bible, will live it with a deep, deep passion and submission to the Holy Spirit that this can shape your life. God bless you. Let me encourage you that who you are is more important than what you do. The lure of defining yourself by your performance is stronger than you might think. So join me in upcoming weeks as we explore the whole leader God created you.